0: Welcome into another episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope coming to you from Columbus. Colin Haas Hill still reporting to us from Cleveland as we uh, get through the month of June here, uh, power through the summer and this offseason, and hopefully move toward start of college football season fairly soon. Uh, NCAA Division I Council expected to approve a proposal today, could even be before you're listening to this podcast. that. Would allow college football teams to begin required workouts on July 13, walk through practices on July 24, and then start fall camp on the usual timeline of 29 days before the start of a season. So, Seems like momentum is building toward the start of a college football season, even in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is good news.
1: Listen, we'll know that we're close to a football season when we can finally stop saying that I'm in Cleveland.
0: Yes. That's when, when Colin has to move back to Columbus and find a place to live again. That's when uh, it'll be football season.
1: Yes, that'll be a real thrill. But I am, you know, looking forward to that because, you know, that would, that would mean that we're uh, actually in the midst of, of some preseason football and hypothetically just a few weeks away from or a month away from from the actual season beginning
0: when is the last time you've like actually done work like outside of your house is that like when you were about to drive to the big 10 championship The big 10 tournament i should say i'm
1: just i'm just yeah and even then i didn't because yeah I, i still remember i got in the shower and then got out and was about to get dressed when I saw someone's, like, report on Twitter that the Big Ten tournament was canceled. And then I was like, well, guess I'm not getting in my car anymore. <laughs> and, yeah, no, it was probably, what, early March? So, yeah, I've just been sitting at home for however long this has been. And let me tell you, as the world uh, around us burns, this has felt a lot more than three months or four months or whatever it's been.
0: Yeah, it's been a crazy few months, no doubt about it. Uh, the, the offseason's always long if you're a college football fa- fan but this one's felt even longer because uh, of all the of all the different things uh, between a pandemic and and civil unrest and everything else that we've had to endure over the last uh, few months it's certainly uh, it's certainly been a lot but we're gonna we're gonna talk um, mostly about actual football on this show we're gonna Look ahead a little bit to the season. Uh, talk about some of the freshmen uh, who we think might play the most. Who might redshirt? Uh, we'll also uh, continue our state of the position series and, and talk about the defensive tackles. But uh, we do want to start out by hitting on what I think has been at least the most talked about news of the last few days around Ohio State, and that is the the quote unquote Buckeye pledge that. Uh, Joey Kaufman of the Columbus Dispatch, he reported this first on Sunday that Ohio State, uh, Ohio State athletes in general, not just football players, all Ohio State athletes who are returning for voluntary workouts have had to sign a document in which uh, they essentially uh, acknowledge the risks of COVID-19 and agree to follow uh, a bunch of different health and safety guidelines like uh, being tested for COVID-19. Uh, agreeing to self-quarantine if they do test positive, uh, reporting any symptoms to the athletic training staff, uh, staying home if you're feeling sick, getting a flu shot, uh, practicing social distancing, uh, wearing a mask, washing hands, largely the same stuff that Everyone is supposed to be doing right now. The same stuff that the CDC and other health experts are telling everyone to be doing right now in terms of uh, trying to protect yourself uh, in the midst of, of this pandemic. But I think the part of it that made this into a national story that a lot of people have been talking about for the last few days is there is an acknowledgement of risk aspect to this. Um, you know, I, I think probably. The part of it that probably stands out the most in that regard is, you know, there's a couple of sentences in there. For example, I also understand that despite all reasonable efforts by the university, I can still contract COVID-19 and other infections. Uh, It says, I understand that although the university is following the coronavirus guidelines issued by the CDC and other experts to reduce the spread of infection, I can never be completely shielded from all risk of illness caused by COVID-19 or other infections. And I think that's where the question of liability, uh, the question of whether unpaid college athletes to be su- should be subject to signing waivers like this starts to come into question. And uh, Gene Smith, he, he was interviewed by ESPN on Sunday, and he said, quote, we don't look at that as a legal document. It's a Buckeye pledge and, and basically said that... Um, you know, they're looking at it more as an educational aspect than they are for a liability. But I think at the same time, it feels a little naive to take that at face value and think that there's no legal aspect of this, to think that the genesis of this isn't at least in part for Ohio State uh, trying to protect itself from a liability standpoint.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's important to, you know, make the point that like Gene Smith is someone who I think is a is a he's someone who defends player rights. He looks out for, for player interests generally, at least especially when compared to his colleagues. I think he's someone who who you know, he's someone who has come out and in, in, in support of players like Seth Towns who and, and CJ Saunders, um, who have both been in the news um, recently. He's someone who supports players getting compensated for their name image likeness and he's he's out in the forefront with those opinions. So I think when you when you when you when you think about Gene Smith it's worth putting into that context where you know to 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 criticize something that Ohio State does um in terms of the Buckeye pledge doesn't mean that Gene Smith is 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 a bad guy and and everything but I do think you know when he says this is a, this is not a legal document it's a buckeye pledge like it's hard not to roll your eyes a little bit because you no, know, why why does someone have to sign it why does someone who's not 18 have to get a parent to sign it why is that part that, that you mentioned about you know the understanding the risks in there why is all of that part of it if it's not a legal document and and you know people have made the point that this probably wouldn't Stand up um, if if, you know, if there were if there was actually um, if there was actually something in the courts that that this wouldn't play a big role. But, you know, I understand that. Um, But I think that, you know, I'm wondering why, why why even have this in the first place? And, and Gene has talked about it a little bit, and I think his general point is they want people to understand the risks and they want people to, to know what to do and whatnot. But there are just certain aspects of it that I'm not sure why um, they're in there, if, if, if that is the main reason. But, you know, like, I don't think, like, it, 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 it wasn't crazy. Like, it wasn't something that I looked at and be like, wow, I cannot believe they're doing this at all. I just thought that, you know, I don't really completely 100% buy into ex- exactly you know what the reasons were and, and what he said.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that, and I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't really think this is that big a deal. I mean, <laughs> that's just my opinion, and I might be a little bit naive in thinking that, but I don't really think it's that big a deal. Um, I, I think, I mean, I, I think again, I think most of the stuff in there, all the suggestions that are in there, the things that they're asking players to do. Uh, those are things that are generally accepted uh, guidelines that everyone should be following. So I, I don't think they're asking the athletes to do anything unreasonable here in, in terms of what they're agreeing to in terms of the Buckeye Pledge. I, I think the big question, you know, like you said, is you know, if, if something was to happen and if an athlete w- was to feel that Ohio State did not handle the situation properly, and was to take some course of action against the university. Would this hold up? And based on you know what I've seen, you know, different lawyers have said about this. Uh, you know, people who study these kind of documents. The answer is kind of we're not sure. I mean, you know, I think if you look at uh, the Dallas Morning News reported on Monday about a waiver that SMU made, its athlete sign, And I think that one went much further in terms of that. That one made the players sign and specifically agree that they voluntarily assume all risks related to COVID 19 and that they are releasing any claims uh, to liability against the university. I I think that I have more of a problem with because that, you know, I think that's going a, a significant step further in terms of. Asking athletes, unpaid athletes, participating in voluntary workouts, to assume all all risks and responsibility in this situation, I I think that's probably a bridge too far. But you know, there is a risk here. There there is a risk here that we can't ignore, and you know, I, I think acknowledging the risk is something everyone has to do. And and I and I also, you know, I think the reality is Ohio State athletes by and large, they're going to sign this because they want to play. They they want to get back. You can ask for questions of whether signing something like this is really in their best interest, but the reality is most of them just want to get back in and, and play and and be with their teammates so badly that they were going to sign this regardless of what it says. So I think you know it does bring up legitimate questions about should should college athletes be being paid you know should should unpaid athletes who are making money for their schools uh, be put in this situation? should athletes be able to unionize and should they be able to negotiate things like this should they have more of a say in terms of raising concerns they might have about signing a document like this and be able to negotiate something rather than basically just being forced to sign whatever the university presents to them I think those are all valid questions but at the same time I don't I don't look at this and say you know wow this is really egregious by uh, Ohio State or or or, you know I I can't believe that they're they're making the athletes do this because I mean we heard Josh Myers say it over a month ago now you know he he would sign anything you know they put in front of him because he wanted to play and 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 I, I think this is just such a fine line to walk here between uh, there, is a, there is a risk, and it's a risk that cannot be denied. And I think at least with something like this, you are putting it out there that, hey, we do know the risks. Uh, we do know these are the steps that need to be taken, and we're all acknowledging that the, these are the risks. What happens from here I think still kind of remains to be seen.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can move on from this in a second, so we don't want to beat this one to death, because I think it got a lot of conversation over the last few days anyway. But I'll just say, like, I think that, you know, like when you look at the document, like you said, I don't think that it's an egregious form. I don't think it's crazy. But to me, it's just another example of where athletes' voices are, are minimized, and, you know, they are told what to do rather than having any bargaining power, Um, despite the fact that if they actually banded together they would be powerful and I think that just the system of college football um, it it minimizes what they can do and what they're allowed to say and what they um, what and and the power they have Um, so to me it's not necessarily even about the document Um, it's about you know more so that you know this is once again to me a situation where players don't have a lot of power um, and they don't have a they don't have a seat at the bargaining table. Um, they, 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 they aren't able to, to agree or, or disagree with, with anything. And, and, and it comes down to, like you said, everybody's going to agree to it because in college, in college athletics, that's just sort of how it's always been. Um, they don't really have the power here. Um, the, the school does. So, yes, of course, they all want to get back and play. In the same way that MLB players want to play but MLB players want something that's fair so right now they're going at it with the owners um, and obviously you know that one <laughs> who knows there might not be a season there uh, but I guess for the benefit of uh, um, certain people who want there to be a season in college football that's never a question um, it, it's more so a question of what the schools want to do rather than what both parties want to do and to me, um, it's just another example of um, the players not really having the power in their hands, which you know it's not it's not egregious. Um, I'll hammer that point again because I, I it's not like i I think that anyone should be furious with Ohio State, but I think it's worth at least mentioning
0: yeah that's that's a very good point you make about uh the MLB in terms of you know the situation that's going on there, and I think we're seeing some of it in the NBA as well, and uh, in terms of you know some players raising concerns, and you know I think some of this kind of goes back to some of the stuff we've talked about in recent weeks too, where you know you have people that just say, you know you know just shut up and play, you know there's 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 you know all this stuff going on in the world, you know just go out and play, but. You, you know, these athletes deserve a voice, and I think that's true uh, at the college level, you know, as well as the professional level. And I, and I thought all along from the time this all started, and you start hearing about all this stuff about how, you know, colleges could lose millions and millions of dollars if there's no football season. And, and I thought all along that's only going to strengthen this argument that college athletes should be paid uh, for the money that they're bringing into the university. So I think this whole year is just going to be more and more fuel toward that fire it's nothing that's going to be cleared up this year we do know that name image and likeness is coming next year so that's a positive step in the right direction in terms of athletes having an opportunity uh, to make money for themselves but i think this whole year is only going to add you know more kindling to that fire in terms of Future conversations we're going to have uh, both about you know whether athletes should be paid you know directly for participating in college sports and whether athletes should be able to unionize and and whether they should be able to have some sort of collective bargaining power uh, for situations like this.
1: Yeah, it'll be fascinating to follow, and that'll be a long, long-term story. Um, but
0: it's not going away anytime soon. It is.
1: It is not, and I'm sure we'll talk about it enough. But. We do want to spend the majority of the podcast talking about what will actually happen on the field, and I know Dan, you wrote about this um, earlier. I think it was last week, actually, um, about the most and least likely candidates to redshirt in 2020. And I do think it's it's always fascinating because I think in a lot of people's minds, like the freshmen are some of the very mo- the, the the most interesting players on the entire team, and you know a good amount of them we won't really see that much this fall, but. I do think that there are some intriguing candidates and I think that you know we sort of want to go I don't know if we want to go player by player position by position but I'll let you take the lead Dan since you wrote the story.
0: Well you know I think we've you know I think to me first of all I feel like you know I feel like we've kind of got the hang of the the redshirt rule now you know I think now that we're going into this third year of the four game redshirt rule we kind of have that roadmap now for for how it can play out in terms of you know how Ohio State might manage it in terms of uh, getting guys on the field and then ultimately making those decisions. So I, I think it's interesting. Uh, I think that you know is, is made, I think that's made the whole freshman redshirt conversation that much more interesting because of the fact that we do expect of the 25 freshmen that started this year, we do expect the vast majority of them to get on the field in some capacity. Now it's just about making those decisions about who's going to play all year. And, and whether any of those guys can really work their way into playing, you know, substantial roles this year.
1: Yeah, it it is interesting and, and you know, it's one of those things when the four game rule was implemented a few years ago, I think we maybe had an idea of how it'll play out. And I think that, you know, generally it's it's played out the, the way that I thought. Yet you know, there are cases like last year where DeWan Jones doesn't redshirt and you know, I think that's a fascinating decision. So there are even there are even moments like that where there there still are surprises. I think generally it's it's a little bit easier right now to predict to predict um, who, who is and isn't redshirting.
0: Well and I think I, I think in one sense, yeah, but I think also I think what it does I think we saw this with a Dewan Jones last year, is I think It'll, it it makes those decisions more flexible, and it allows it allows for someone who probably I think three years ago, DeWan Jones would have redshirted. I think they he just have would have now. he wouldn't have played at all. I think the fact that they didn't have that red the fact that they have that new redshirt rule that allowed him to get in a few games and and show something to the staff gave them confidence to say, all right, we're going to go ahead. And play this guy all year. And I think, you know, the the converse of that is there's guys, you know, in in past years who maybe, you know, they just would have thrown him out there just to see if they can do and just burn that red shirt. And now you might do that and a guy plays three or four games and you say, you know what, he really doesn't have a role for us this year and, and he's really not ready to keep playing. So you make that decision after a few games to say, well, you know, I, I, I just don't think it's worth it for this guy to continue to play all season and burn a year of eligibility. So I think it just makes uh, the conversation that much more interesting in terms of uh, managing that.
1: Yeah, Nick petit uh is sort of a similar example where, if I remember correctly, he played three of the first four games his freshman season, and then he didn't play again after that. Um, and, and they preserved his red shirt. And I thought that that was maybe one of the more fascinating uses of it because, you know, when you play three of the first four games, it makes you think that generally you're not going to red shirt. But, you know, they they, they decide to go that route, and, and we'll see if it pays off if he's even around for a fifth season. But I do think, um, you know, I don't know about you, but like right now with the four-game rule being in effect, it's like how did college football go on where – If you played a single snap, that that meant you were no longer eligible for redshirt. Because this just, I'll be honest, this just makes so much sense. And and I can't believe there's not something similar in
0: college basketball. Well, I think an important point to remember on Nicholas Petit Frere is part of a reason why that happened... Was because the defense was so bad two years ago that after the first four games of a year, Ohio State never really had an opportunity this to play its backups is, yes, because they, they didn't they couldn't blow anybody out because the defense always kept other teams in games. Whereas last year we saw literally the first eleven games of of a year it was like or I think it was first ten games I should say they were all just blowouts that. Uh, they they were able to get the backups in for extended time so and ryan day has made that point over and over again he he always brings that up like i think basically every time we've talked to him this offseason whenever he gets asked about the backups he always brings up the fact that those guys got playing time last year so i think he i think he really legitimately feels really good about the fact that so many of his backups got to play and i think I think with the freshmen, I think it's such a huge advantage having this rule because you know you have guys now that you know maybe in the past year maybe they never would have played at all, but now they've at least gotten a taste. Where if they need to play, at least, at least they've gotten a taste. They're not they're not going into the season. You know, you think of someone like a Sean Wade from a couple years ago, where you know he he comes in his redshirt freshman year and he's playing quite a bit uh, right away and he played fine, but. He was coming in having never played a snap of college football before, whereas now, you know, even after having an injury, maybe he's able to get in late in the year, get some snaps to kind of help prepare him to play that next year.
1: So if we're talking about this fall, is there anyone who stands out, or a couple people who are, you're basically 100% certain that they're not going to redshirt?
0: I mean, it's it's picking the low-hanging fruit, but it's Paris Johnson and Julian Fleming, because... When you're a top 10 overall recruit in the country, you typically don't redshirt. And I think both of those guys are just way too talented to redshirt. Uh, You know, I don't know if they're going to start necessarily, but I I think, you know, those are two guys who are far more likely to be at Ohio State for only three years than they are for five. And I just don't think there's any way you're going to not find a way to, to get them some playing time this year and that you would redshirt them.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, Paris is the easy one. I couldn't imagine him not redshirting because either he's going to start or he's going to be the top backup right tackle and he's going to play a good amount, I, I, I still think, because I think that you're still viewing him as a potential starting left tackle in 2021, even if he's the backup this year. And, and if you're that, then you want to get on the field the, the year before as much as you can. And I think Fleming's a good candidate, too. I maybe feel just a, just slightly less confident about him because for Paris – I'm basically 100% certain he's not going to redshirt. I'm probably like 98% sure that Julian Fleming isn't going to redshirt. But the the way that I see it with Fleming too is that you know when you're pitching a guy that good on why to come to Ohio State, like part of it is early playing time. And I think the expectation when you get someone like that is that you give them a shot early, and you give them and you give them um, you give them a good amount of snaps early. And I think. I mean, I think we're probably in an agreement here that I think that he'll be the, either the backup um, at X or the, the starter at X. Um, so I think he'll, he'll, he'll clearly get um, quite a few amount of snaps. But, you know, there is a world and maybe this world, um, there's 1% chance of it, (laughs) but there is a world in which, you know, maybe G Scott's a little bit more ready for playing time and and he slips, uh, behind just slightly early in his career or Jackson Smith and Jigma moves back outside and, and Fleming's, um, move back a little bit, but I'm, I'm pretty certain that he's not going to redshirt. I mean, he is, he's quite literally the top rated recruit in his class who wasn't a quarterback. Uh, That's, that's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying I think Julian Fleming is uh, 100% going to make the biggest impact of the freshman receivers this year. Because I think Jackson Smith and Jigba, uh, I don't think he's going to redshirt either. I think he definitely has a chance to be in the rotation. Uh, I think G. Scott and Mookie Cooper are both talented enough as well that they could push for playing time. So I don't I don't think any of them are sure bets to redshirt. I, I think it's possible none of them redshirt. I, I think most likely one or two of them will. But I just look at a guy like Fleming and, and, and just say... You're going to get him on the field when you can. I mean, Even if he's not in the rotation, which I think he will be, you think he will be, even if he's not, you're still going to get him on the field when you can because he's just not going to be there for five years. The number three overall recruit in the country just isn't going to be there for five years. So there's no point in redshirting him. There there just really isn't. So you're going to get him on the field uh, one way or another, uh, legs like I, I mean, I think it's going to be a Garrett Wilson situation, much like last year, where I don't think he'll start right away, but I think he will be in the rotation right away. And I think if he progresses the way that you would expect him to, his playing time will gradually increase over the course of a year. And I and I, I think Smith the Jig was another guy who I think is is very much in that boat. I and mean, there's only so many spots in the rotation to go around, but he's another guy that I look at five star recruit a guy who I think comes in with a really polished skill set uh, and is going to be ready to play as a freshman, uh, I, I think he's another guy who's going to really make a strong push for a spot in the rotation, and I don't think you're likely to redshirt him because I think he's a guy that's going to contribute early in his Ohio State career.
1: Yeah, I think Ohio State hasn't done a great job at times of strategically redshirting players, um, and, and I know that when when I say that like I'm dialed in on the, the third-year – third-year linebackers um Kavon Pope to Roger Mitchell and Dallas Gantt who again all three of them might be backups again as juniors before they get a chance to start as seniors and I think that that's pretty crazy that earlier in their career at least one of them didn't redshirt but um the way I see it is that the way Ohio State is recruiting a wide receiver right now why in the world would you redshirt a wide receiver I mean Though if, if Brian Hartline stays at Ohio State and is continuing to bring in top 100 talent at the wide receiver position year after year, what is eventually going to be the benefit of not playing a guy early in his career and then getting a fifth year out of them when you know all of a sudden you're going to have a, a second or third year wide receiver who's ready to break out and you know maybe there's this guy who's back for his fifth season who hasn't developed the way that you hope Um, who's ahead of him. And and I just don't see a ton of benefit in that. I think that, you know, you want to see what you have early and then you want to let the best guys play. And I think that that's what Brian Hardline is going to do. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, like you said, to see all four wide receivers not redshirt. If there is going to be one that doesn't redshirt, I would probably say Mookie Cooper, just because I think Fleming will be in the rotation. I think Smith and Jigba probably could be as well. And I think G. Scott is a, I, I think physically he's maybe the most impressive guy um, at his age um, on the roster uh, in terms of the, those freshman wide receivers and I just think since Mookie Cooper didn't play his senior year of high school since he's maybe since he's just physically a little bit smaller I just wonder if he maybe takes a little bit longer and, and maybe he's the guy who red shirts especially since Ohio State does have a good amount of, of slot wide receivers especially after Garrett Wilson moved there but I don't see a ton of benefit to redshirting these guys so I think especially especially a wide receiver those guys are going to play
0: yeah I, I and I think you know that's why Ohio State doesn't do a lot of strategic redshirting in general I mean I, I think Ryan Day's been more open to that I mean if, with with Urban Meyer it was always we don't redshirt we don't we don't plan to redshirt and they did I mean it, that was a lie it was, I mean if we're being honest that was that that was a, that was a line I mean they there were absolutely guys that they uh planned to redshirt but um, you know, I, I think I think Ryan Day's a little bit more open to that in terms of, uh, you know, you know, we're gonna we're gonna make you know strategic decisions, but they're, they're not gonna overdo it because I think the expectation is we are gonna continue to recruit elite talent we're we're gonna continue to bring guys in. So you don't necessarily wanna wanna backlog guys. So you know, I think like DeJuan Jones is a guy who, when I wrote this piece last week, there were a lot of comments about. Uh, that was a mistake. Shouldn't shouldn't have redshirted DeWand. And I and, I, and I, I I I get that argument because you do look at okay, if we both think Paris Johnson is probably gonna be a starter next year, which I think he probably will be, if you if you assume Nicholas Petit Frere's gonna be back. Okay, now you look at the possibility where okay, when does DeWand get his chance to be a starter? I mean it might be his senior year. You know, you know he you know he, he he could he could end up getting you know blocked to where he doesn't have a great opportunity, uh, and where you could really like to have that extra year at the end of a line. So I think I get it from that sense, but on the other sense of it, well, y- you're still trying to recruit you know elite guys. You've got you know Ben Chrisman coming in next year. You've got Tegra Shabola coming in the year after, and you also want Dewan Jones to be ready to play this year because he is probably going to be one of your backup tackles. So I think Ohio State looks at a situation like that and says, well, we need to make sure he's, more, he's ready to play next year. That's more important than him having a fifth year of eligibility in 2023, if I'm doing the math right. So I, I, I think Ohio State takes things like that into consideration. And I think you, you, I think you want a healthy mix in terms of redshirting guys. Uh, I don't think, you know, I, I remember, I don't remember what year it was. I think it was like Jerome Baker's class or something where like only three guys played and the rest of the class redshirted. Generally, you don't want that with a class because it ends up creating a backlog, which then eventually is going to lead to you having to take a smaller recruiting class because you've got so many guys with that extra year of eligibility.
1: Yeah, I think that it, what Ryan Day has talked about in the past too is you know there's a balance that he likes, where he likes to have some fifth-year guys who have been around, like a Damon Arnett, like a like a Devon Hamilton, like a Jonah Jackson, um, but he also wants to balance that out with five-star talent superstars guys who guys like chase young and jeff okuda and and you look at last year's roster and i'll be honest like like last year's roster i've said it a few times we're going to continue to come back to this and for years to come because i just think last year's roster was perfect when it came to that it had a quarterback it had a great mix of talent it had everything that you want um so I think Ohio State, looking forward, is, is is going to try to try to make that happen. I think when when you look at um, since since we were talking offensive line, I think it's probably worth just going through the rest of the offensive linemen just because it's a really big class. I um, mean that's obviously Paris Johnson, like we mentioned, and then Luke Whippler Josh Fryer, Jacob James, Trey Larue, and Grant Tutant. Um, are do you do you imagine? If you were to make the call right now, do they go five for five? All five of those other guys redshirting?
0: No, I, I I'm my my guess is Luke Whippler doesn't redshirt. Um, my guess my guess is Luke Whippler will be the backup center. And I I think it depends on whether he he is the backup center because uh, typically the way it works is typically your first string offensive line plays, your second team offensive line plays. The third team offensive line typically doesn't play. So I think those la- those other four guys, Josh Fryer, Jacob James, Trey LaRue, Grant Tutant, I think those are all guys that are developmental guys that uh, are not going to be ready to play this year. And I think uh, other than Jake Seibert, the kicker, who's uh, only going to play if anything happens to Blake Aubiel, I think after him, I think those four are the biggest locks to redshirt on the team. Uh, but I think Whipler, I, I think Whipler is a guy who, who might not be, I think he's a guy, uh, that I think could be the backup center. Um, you, you know, you do, you have a, you have a question to ask there in terms of, okay, if, if, if Whipler is blocking a, uh, Enoch Vamahi or Ryan Jacoby who redshirted last year from getting on the field, uh, is that, you know, the best move, but, you know Whippler's a top 100 guy, uh, and I think he is a guy that they probably would like to get some experience this year so that he's ready to compete for uh, a spot next year when most likely Josh Myers and Wyatt Davis are both going to be off to the NFL. So my, my guess will be that Luke Whipler will not redshirt, but I think that will depend on whether they settle in on him as the backup center.
1: Yeah, I'll go – I think he does redshirt. I think that all five do redshirt. But I, I get – I if I were to pick one who wouldn't redshirt, I think Whipler is pretty much the clear answer just because I think that the other – I think Trey LaRue and Jacob James and Grant Tuton all need time. And I think that Josh Fryers just – he's got other guys in front of him right now. There's no reason to, to rush him. Um, the way – the, the reason I don't necessarily think that Luke Whipler is going to be that guy is because I don't think – necessarily that he'll be the backup center I think that could be Matthew Jones um, because I mean he's someone who out of high school I mean he was the top he was the top center in his class um, and and yes he's competing at left guard right now but you know That's where Harry Miller is right now, too, and he has center experience. I think that Matthew Jones is is the kind of guy who I think that they like his versatility and, and his ability to go back and forth between center and guard. So I think that he'll get some of those reps that otherwise could go to Whipler. That said, I, I certainly could see Whippler not redshirting, but I think that there's enough interior depth right now that if they want to strategically redshirt, <laughs> this would be a good time because Luke Whipler is someone who you imagine – as soon as you know, 2022 could be could be a starter but even still like I'll say this like I projected the depth chart for 2020 2021 and 2022 for the state of the position offensive line series um, and I didn't project him as a starter in any of those 3 years um, so if we're act- if we're going to talk about strategically um, redshirting players I think the strategic decision would be to redshirt him this season because they don't necessarily need him next season and they don't need him even necessarily the year after unless someone goes pro early um so that's that's the that's the reason i think he'll redshirt but if there's one of those five guys who wouldn't i i do think it's probably him
0: since we're talking about strategic redshirts Let's go ahead and talk about quarterbacks, because I, I know this is the one that we, we disagree on. Um, I know that we, we kind of both have different opinions on how they should handle uh, this situation with the freshman quarterbacks, and I'm of the opinion that I think it makes sense for at least one of them to redshirt this year. I believe you're of the opinion that you don't think either of them should redshirt at all.
1: No, and I'll say this, Dan, I think you're crazy for that opinion. Why? Because I don't think that there's any benefit to not redshirting or to to redshirting either of them. I don't think that – I see no reason why they should be redshirted because there's zero chance that either of them are going to play five seasons at Ohio State. Like I can – if that happens, to me, something will have gone wrong because the way that Ryan Day talks about wanting to be QBU means that he's going to be sending these guys off to the league every three years. Um, So – if C.J. Stroud or Jack Miller is the future at at, Ohio, at, at quarterback for Ohio State, I think it, it it's in Ohio State's best interest to get them ready as soon as possible, and that means getting them both snaps this season. And also you're playing the dance with them where, you know, these are two guys who rightly or wrongly, like the situation they're in, pits them against each other the moment they step on campus. And sure, some might view it as unfair, but – when you're two highly regarded quarterbacks who, who are in the same class um, coming into the same university, it's hard not to do that. Especially when Justin Fields, as we all know, is going to the NFL next season and those two guys are going to compete for the starting job and whatever happens, it's probably going to be one of those two guys who's the starter. Um, so you play the dance if you want to keep them both happy right now and you want to do your best to, to, to do that throughout the 2020 season. And to me, that means playing them both equally or as equally as you can. And, and if I'm C.J. Stroud and I redshirt and Jack Miller doesn't, that tells me where I am on the depth chart. And I don't know that – I think that what we've seen um, with with quarterbacks thus far over the past you know few years, um, I don't necessarily know that, that he or, or Jack Miller, if he were the one that redshirted would – Take too kindly to that. I think that it's both in Ohio State's best interest and in the players' best interest to to not redshirt them and to get them both as as many snaps as they
0: can. He, he, here's a here's a counterpoint to that. So, so let's just again, this is just a hypo, it's just a hypothetical scenario here. So let's say CJ Stroud pulls ahead, and let's say you know going into next year that CJ Stroud emerges as the the future starter now it now if you're Jack Miller and let's let's okay let's assume Jack Miller red shirts this year if it's hypothetical so if you're Jack Miller if you red shirt this year then you could hypothetically talk Jack Miller into hey there's still a plan for you there's still a way that you know you've got four years of eligibility left you could still be a future starting quarterback at Ohio State if you stay here and continue to develop. But if you don't redshirt either of them, you're just taking that possibility off the table. If you, it, it, I mean, I, I get it. You're coming from this from a standpoint of, I'm just assuming whoever's not the starter next year is going to transfer, so it doesn't matter. But if you don't redshirt either one of them this year, then then you're basically pushing them out the door, whoever doesn't win the job, because now they're going to look at it and say, well, there's just not going to be time for me to be the starter here. But if, if you redshirt me every guy starts and you're talking about this three-year plan, now you could hypothetically look at it and say, if a guy wants to stay, there's still that opportunity that he could potentially be the starter for two years down the line if he wants to be. I'm not necessarily saying he would want to do that, but should we just take away that possibility?
1: No, I think that – I think. In in this scenario, you're talking about pitching someone to stay and start in your fourth season and and fifth season if you stay for for both years versus going somewhere else and starting immediately either your second or third season because um, I think that, one, I think that by next year, I I imagine that players will be able to transfer one time um, without sitting out a season. So I think that would allow Jack Miller to go and, and transfer and, and start immediately. But even if that weren't the case, I think there's a case to be made that, you know, Jack Miller leaves and then redshirts somewhere else as he sits on the bench and then goes and plays his third season of college ball somewhere else in this in this scenario that you're pitching. So I think that I think it's a tough it's an extremely tough sell to say, Hey, we're gonna redshirt you because we want you to be here in your fourth and fifth season starting for us. I just think that that is, in the current age of quarterback, I just think that's impossible. And I could be wrong. I mean, who knows? Maybe that is what they're planning on doing. I I would just be so blown away by anybody going for that pitch these days. I just think a quarterback especially, that's not really what, what players are doing.
0: I get that. And I'm not saying you're wrong, but I, I just think that to just right off that possibility to take away that option, I mean, to me, I, I would leave the option open. That's, that's just my opinion. And here's, the, and here's the other part of this, in terms of n- not redshirting and, and playing them equally and all that. I think, in theory, that sounds great. I think, in practice, that's harder to do. I, th- I think this idea of playing them equal snaps all year long I I think that might be harder to actually do than it sounds. Because, for example, so let's, you know, and first of all, I'll say this. I don't think Ohio State's defense is going to be as good as it was last year. So I don't think Ohio State is going to have 11 straight blowouts like it did last year. Which means (laughs) I don't think there's necessarily going to be as many opportunities where Justin Fields is coming out of a game in the third quarter. So let's say it's the fourth quarter in... Eight minutes to go, and you've got a four-touchdown lead, and you decide to take your starters out of the game. Now, if you're putting... Now, first of all, you've also got the gunnar Hoke equation in here. But even if, even if you say, okay, we want to play one of the freshmen. So if you put one of the freshmen in in this situation, now you're looking at, okay, maybe you've got one drive left here. If Are you just going into this and saying, okay, if we have a second drive, we're absolutely putting the ever-freshman in to make sure they get more playing time? or if you're putting a guy in the game, do you want to give him that opportunity to at least, you know, finish out the game?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you can go back and forth. I think if you go into the first game and you say, well, we're going to go to CJ first and, you know, he'll get either one drive or two drives. And if it's a blowout and, and then, you know, if there's a third, then we'll put in Jack and then, if that goes according to plan, if Ohio State wins seventy five to nothing in, in week one, then when week three rolls around and they face Buffalo, well maybe Jack comes in the first time and then CJ comes in the second time. I think it's doable. Yes, I think that I think it's I think it's maybe a little bit more difficult than, than some people give it credit for, but I think that's not the part that that um, that would worry me at all. I think more so what I would be worried is if you're telling Jack Miller during his freshman season that, hey, you're the backup, I mean, I, I, I couldn't imagine him not transferring in that, scenario, in that situation. And the same thing goes for if you told C.J. Stroud that, because you're essentially telling him, hey, we're going to register you this year so that three years down the line you can start for us.
0: And and to me, I just I couldn't imagine that going over well. And I'm, I'm not saying that's what you do. I, I, what, I guess what I'm saying is I, I just – I mean, first of all, I think if you're going – if you're going to alternate on your plan, if you're going to say, okay, you're going to – well, then, then, you, then in that scenario, you're going to have a situation where if they've played four games – I mean, one of those guys might clearly outperform the other in those four games. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you might say, okay, that guy's going to play the rest of the year. And the other guy isn't. I mean, and, and, no, I, and, and I get what you're saying. I just don't think you can do that. And and
1: and number two to that, I think you have to prepare both as much as you can. Because I mean, what happens if you say that and then the guy who you project as the starter next season gets hurt, and then you just redshirted a guy and didn't give him snaps when he could have because you thought the other guy was going to play? Um, I just think that you have to get you have to get your guys ready. And I don't think it benefits Ohio State to think about who's going to be the quarterback in 2024 to 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 maybe not get the guy in 2021 ready and uh, as much as as much as you would like
0: no i i think that's fair to say that you know if if it you know if, if you can get both quarterbacks experience in six games or whatever it makes sense to do that to prepare them both for the future i also think you know the thing we can't overlook here completely is the fact that Justin Fields could get hurt, and you also... This isn't just about preparing for 2021. This isn't just about keeping guys happy. It's also about making sure that you've got guys who are ready to go in the game if they're needed to play. So that's part of this equation, too. And and Gunnar Hoke's part of that equation as well, where, I mean, you, you can't just divide up backup playing time based on keeping them happy and evaluating them for the future you've also got to prepare at Mm -hmm. least one or two guys so that they are ready to go if you need them to play so you've got to balance that part of the the equation too i think if 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 stroud and miller are truly neck and neck then, then you are going to try to keep their playing time as equal as possible. But if, if, if you get to a point where you say, okay, you know, if, if you're in September, or, or or whatever, and you say, you know what, I think if if something happens to Justin, I think CJ is going to be the next guy in, or if something happens to Justin, I think Jack's going to be the next guy in. Then I think you probably would play that guy more because you want to get him as many reps as possible, so that. He, he's ready to go in if need be. And, and if Gunner's that guy, then Gunner has to play. If Gunner's that guy, he has to play because you can't, you can't sit him on the bench all year long and then if you need him, have to call him in having not played him all year.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that So th- if we're looking at the schedule, they play Bowling Green, then they play Oregon, then they play Buffalo, then they play Rutgers. If If three of the first four games aren't blowouts, I will I will be blown away. <laughs> that Agreed. would shock me. So I think those are three games three three games in the first month of the season that we'll get to see exactly how they're going to, to play this quarterback thing out. And I do think that this is an opportunity to like you said, play guys equally and see who maybe takes an edge. And I don't think that would necessarily mean that the next time you have a blowout that's the guy who plays a lot that's the guy who plays you know most of the snaps but i think it would give you an idea of you know if justin fields went down who's the guy who goes in the game who's the guy who actually goes and takes the starter um snaps and i think that that's the thing that they're definitely going to have to figure out but i also don't necessarily think that you can't split snaps just because of that um I think it's a I do think like you said, there will be fewer blowouts in my opinion this season than less than last season just because last season was just so magical in that way where every single game was a blowout. But I think that they can absolutely split enough snaps. I mean you look down the season, well, you you end it with Maryland and, and Illinois just before Michigan, and there's also a couple games like a Michigan State and a Nebraska. I could absolutely see either or both of those games going in Ohio State's favor by four or five touchdowns. Um, I mean, that we we've seen those kind of games happen in the past, and I'm sure they'll, they'll happen again um, at, at some point this fall. So I think that there are enough times where, where you can get where you can get these younger quarterbacks in the game a fairly equal amount that I'm not overly concerned about about that
0: yeah I agree that I think you know those first four games there's going to be three games there that if you want to get both of them in the game there's going to be enough snaps available that you could play both of them in those first three games and I think if you do that you've got a bye week after that Rutgers game in September I think that might be when that When you have to make that decision, I think you might go into that first month and say, okay, we're going to play them both as much as we can in September. And then you might go into that bye week and say, okay, let's reevaluate where we stand here. Is one of these guys ahead of the other right now? And if one of them is, then at that point, you might make the decision of that guy is our our next man up. And and that's the guy who we're going to play more of a rest of the year. Uh, I I think that could happen, but I, but I would agree. I think as you go into that first month, especially after you haven't had a full off season, I I think it's more likely uh, you're not actually picking one of them ahead of the other. At that point, you're going to get them both in there for some live action and and kind of evaluate them as they go.
1: Yeah. I think it's, I think it's important in that first month too, to get the snaps because I do think later in the season, It'll make you want to keep the starters in longer. I mean, one way or another, just because, like the, j- just because I think that once you get that far into the season, it's hard to pull a guy. Thinking about the twenty twenty one season, whereas early in the year, it's like, well, you schedule Bowling Green and Buffalo mainly because you know they're going to be blowouts, and they're absolutely opportunities for for these younger guys to get the double digit snaps. So I think that you know, in the first month. I do think it's going to be really important to get to get an eye on, on what Ohio State really has in these guys. And, and, you know, the one guy in here, like you mentioned, I have no idea what Gunnar Oaks' role is going to be. Like, he might be, he might sacrifice a lot of snaps to these guys, or he might play more than I really thought just because Ohio State really thinks that he's the best option in 2020 if Justin Fields were to get hurt. But we just saw him so infrequently last fall that I don't know it ton about him. I don't know a ton of what to expect. I mean, I thought he was going to be the backup last year and then he didn't beat out Chris Chuganov.
0: Um, so I'm just not sure. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the equation. I mean, I think if Gunnar Hoke is your number two quarterback and he's the first guy coming off the bench every game, then probably one or maybe even both of these freshman quarterbacks are redshirting because there's just not going to be that many snaps left over if they're the third and fourth quarterbacks off the bench. But You know, like for all the reasons we've talked about, you know, that's a reason why, you know, those guys might play over Hoke because you want to see what those guys can do uh, right now because uh, the reality is Gunnar Hoke does not have any more eligibility after this year. He is not going to be the future quarterback, starting quarterback of Ohio State, but one of those other two probably will. So the more snaps you can get him this year, the better. Uh, But it's going to be a really delicate balance. It's going to be fascinating to watch.
1: So so I think that. Like, we, we have an idea of what we would do. <laughs> what do you think they're going to do? Do you think
0: either of them redshirt? Do you think both of them redshirt? Do you think um, none of them redshirt? I lean toward one of them redshirting and one of them not, and I, I know that uh, you disagree with that, and maybe you know maybe I'm wrong, and maybe that will lead to uh, immediate disarray in the quarterback room, but I, I lean I lean toward uh, you know both of them playing some of those early games, and eventually Ohio State, um, you know, based on how they perform over preseason camp and in that early season action, one of them ultimately starting to pull ahead of the other, and that guy uh, being the guy who gets more snaps for the rest of the year uh, with the other one most likely redshirting. Dan, I'm just going to
1: say if that happens and the quarterback room does get thrown in a disarray, I'm going to blame you. Okay. Uh, that that's going to be that's going to be on on your shoulders but yeah no i think that you know that i'm going to go the opposite way and i think that i think neither of them will redshirt because i think that it's especially given the way that ohio state has redshirted. i think that ohio state won't necessarily see um the benefits long term outweighing the benefits in the in the short term for that but Luckily, one of us will be proven right, and uh, we will we will settle it on the field, Dan.
0: He bluntly, I hope that Ryan Day isn't listening to either one of us for advice on how to handle this. <laughs> I hope
1: he is. I really hope
0: yeah. he yeah. is. Yeah, I, I mean, he's going to understand the dynamics, uh, him and Corey Dennis, of course. They're, they're going to understand the dynamics uh, within that quarterback room much better than we will, and, and they're the ones who ultimately have to... Uh, figure out how to play this, but it's going to be fascinating. I mean, the reality is, there's just not really a blueprint for this. Uh, there just isn't. It, there hasn't been a situation like this at Ohio State in the era of quarterbacks transfers being very commonplace. So it, it just makes for a really fascinating situation uh, that, that Ohio State's going to have to have to juggle. And and uh, you know they might get it right they might not one of us is going to be wrong we'll <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll re-evaluate after it actually happens
1: what else can we argue about in terms of freshmen
0: well who who do you think uh, outside of the five-star guys that we already named in a quarterback who would be the you, the guy that you would say you're most confident in contributing in some way this year Hmm.
1: So outside of the guys that we've talked about, I think it's an interesting case because I think there are some guys like I forget a little bit about, like I forget about Cody Simon. I think Cody Simon's maybe the most underrated player in the class that no one really talks about. But to be fair, there's good reason because there's seven upperclassmen linebackers, so there's really no reason for him to play a ton early. I think Myon Williams is interesting, um, and I think that you know his physical transformation is is incredible. But I do wonder if he'll be able to get on the field to, to play as much as, as you know that. Um, I think the guy I might go with is maybe Lathan Ransom. Um, and it's just because I just have a sneaking suspicion that Ohio State's gonna play more two safety looks than, than maybe they've talked about. And you know they talked about staying with the single sa- single deep safety. And I think that that'll that'll be that'll continue to be a big part of their defense, but I don't know. I, almost the more they talk about that, the less I believe them, because their actions to me speak a little bit differently. And Josh Proctor and and, and the way that he filled that position last year, I don't think that he filled it necessarily um, the way that that Jordan Fuller did. And and the fact that they're basically complete opposites, in which Jordan Fuller's a, a really safe safety who was always making the 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 making the tackle when he needed to but he also didn't make a a ton of he didn't create many turnovers he didn't make a ton of wild plays jeff Rogers the total opposite of that i do wonder if maybe he'd be better in a two safety um system and just based on the defensive turnover i wonder if that's something that they'll go to more so i'll just say latham ransom but i'm not i'm certainly not set on that dan is there someone who you had in mind
0: Yeah, I mean, I think realistically, you know, the rest of these guys, you know, we're talking about special teams being the most likely area where any of them are really going to contribute this year. I I don't think, uh, you know, any of these guys, you know, know, especially, you know, on on defense, I I don't think I think if, if Ohio State has to turn to any of them to play substantial roles on defense this year. It probably means something went wrong with a veteran because uh, I, I don't think it, it's set up to where Ohio State really wants any of these guys to be thrust into uh, substantial roles this year. But, you know, as I just look at guys who I think, you know, could could make an impact on on special teams and, you know, maybe kind of uh, kickstart. You know their careers toward bigger playing time next year. Uh Leif and Ransom certainly one of the first guys I had in mind. Court Williams is another guy. You know, really versatile guy that you know he could play safety, he could play linebacker. That's the kind of guy that I think could have a role uh, early in his career on defense, and I think is absolutely a strong candidate uh, to to make an immediate impact on special teams this year. And and I look at Cameron Martinez a guy with his kind of versatility. Uh, I think he's tailor-made to make an immediate impact on special teams, uh, both as a coverage guy and, and maybe even as a return guy. Uh, he was a really good return guy in high school. So he's a guy, uh, I don't know if he'll necessarily be a lead returner this year, but I think he could push at that spot. And, and I think he's a guy that I could definitely see playing a lot on special teams this year uh, to prepare him to, to have a role on either side of the ball at, at some point early in his Ohio State career.
1: Yeah, I think he's he's someone who's interesting. I think I think there are a good amount of players who who, like you said, it just totally depends on special teams. I mean, even when I was talking about Lathan Ransom, he's he's absolutely someone whose special teams is gonna play a huge role for all the defensive backs, um, all the a lot of the wide receivers I'm sure will will be seen uh will be seen there. What about Dan the defensive linemen? Do you expect any of them to to play enough not to redshirt I and mean, when i talk about that i'm I, i'm referring to to colby cowan darian henry young and, and ty hamilton who are all right now defensive ends even though you know maybe one or two ends up a defensive tackle
0: yeah i think maybe one um and i'd say maybe because because they have a lot of depth at defensive end with jonathan cooper zach harrison tyreek smith tyler friday javante jean baptiste noah potter they don't. Oh wait,
1: wait, wait, wait! You forgot the big one, Dan. The big one? Cormonta Hamilton.
0: Cormonta. Yeah, I don't really know exactly what he is yet. <laughs> if he's an end or a tackle, I'm not exactly sure what his role is at this point. So uh, I don't really know where to factor him in. But you know, those six guys I named, if I'm guessing who the who the first, second, and third team defensive ends are, it's going to be those six guys that I just named. So I don't, you know, I think they could red shirt off three of these guys. I also think, because of what we talked about before, I think it maybe makes sense not to necessarily redshirt all three of them. Um, maybe you know, maybe you, you space them out a little bit. And I think you know there, there could you know we know Larry Johnson rotates deep on his defensive line, so there'll probably be some opportunities. You know, might just be late in games, but there'll probably be some opportunities that if, if they want to get these guys on the field a little bit. Um, that could be an opportunity. So, I, I, if I was going to lean toward any of them, who I think would be least likely to redshirt, I would say Jacoby Cowan. I think he's probably the one who's going to be most ready to play as a freshman. But I think the door is ajar for all of them. I think I think you know any any one of them could impress enough where Ohio State says, you know, we're gonna we're gonna play this guy. We're not gonna redshirt him, get him his reps, and get him ready for next year. But I also think they're in a position where unless they have injuries. Uh, they could easily redshirt all of them. They're not going to really need any of those guys to play a lot this year.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Could you, uh, Jacoby Cowan, I've been fascinated with just ever since we we watched that one spring practice and you see these guys on the field finally for the first time after talking about them and hearing their names for so long. And he's someone who I think physically just stood out even among the the defensive the defensive linemen just because you know he is a, he is a big frame, um, and I think. Uh, I think Larry Johnson is has a lot to work with, um, with him.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think I think those are all guys again that, you know, I think you know you look at what they could do two to three years down the line. I think it's going to be interesting because I think they're all guys that have some versatility and uh, could definitely, you know, it's possible one or two of those guys ends up playing inside as well. But I think they're all guys who, you know, we're, we're probably more likely talking about them making a substantial impact uh, a couple of years from now than we are going to be this year.
1: Is there anyone who you think has a chance to be the Dewan Jones and just out of nowhere redshirts and makes some people scratch their heads? But you know, Ohio State sees something in him, and I think the it's it's an unfair question because no one would have answered Dewan Jones last year. <laughs>
0: Right, that's the thing. It, it's it's hard to say. I mean, DeWand was kind of in the same spot as those offensive linemen we talked about earlier, where really didn't really didn't think he was going to play, and, and he just did. So, um, you know, that one caught me by surprise. I mean, you briefly mentioned him before, but you know, I, I I think Mayan Williams is probably a guy that comes to mind because you know, I think him, you know, coming in as a free star recruit uh, at running back, you wouldn't you you would think he's probably more likely to redshirt been not this year but you know with all the question marks they have at that position I, I think the door is definitely open that he could uh get enough playing time to where it makes sense not to redshirt him and I think that might be one that would surprise people if he doesn't but uh you know that that's probably the guy that would most closely come to mind for me in answering that question
1: yeah I might say Joe Royer um because I don't think that we talk about Joe Royer at all, really. Mainly because no one ever talks about tight ends at Ohio State. Um, but you know, when I look at the depth chart, it's Luke Farrell, it's Jeremy Record, it's Jake Hausman, and then you know, maybe Cade Stover. Um, I I have I honestly can say I have no idea what to expect about with Cade Stover at tight end. But um, you know, if Joe Royer shows that you know he's maybe more ready immediately than Cade Stover for playing time. I mean, he's someone who I think um, he impressed the coaches enough to to get an offer at a camp last year. I think he can impress them enough to to maybe surprise some people and not redshirt. I think generally it would benefit Ohio State to to redshirt him, but if I'm thinking about the – the tight end position, which is one that Kevin Wilson loves to play multiple tight ends as many times as he can. I mean, Joe Royer's just another guy there in, in, in the mix, so it would surprise me, um, but I guess that he maybe would be the DeWand um, pick, and that it would surprise me. It would be a legitimate surprise to me if he did, but I think that just because the nature of how Ohio State uses its tight ends, I guess it's possible.
0: Whenever I look at the possible red shirts each year, I also look at Are there any guys who are not freshmen that haven't redshirted that maybe could be this year? And I I don't think there's a lot of obvious candidates on the roster this year. I I think the one that I look at, you know, as maybe a possibility is Marcus Crowley because he didn't redshirt last year before he suffered his knee injury. And I think this might depend on his health, but I would think if, you know, if he's not 100% going into the season, and, and if he might be limited, you know, for at least part of a year, I think he'd be the one guy that I would look at and say, you know, it, you know, maybe you just redshirt him this year. You know, you could still play him in four games. But if he's not in that rotation because he's not healthy, he's a guy it might make sense to just redshirt this year, uh, get back that year of eligibility. Uh, going into 2021 when he might be more healthy and fully ready to go. Is is there anyone else that you look at who's not a freshman and say, you know, maybe there, there'd be some sense of redshirting this guy this year?
1: Not really, honestly. I think that, I think generally to me, not redshirting a freshman is almost exclusively due to injuries and there's no one else who comes to mind in that, or just in a traditional redshirt where, you know, maybe it would be best to only play four games and, and max out at that. I, I, don't, I don't think that there's anyone who
0: else who, who really comes to mind. Right, And like you said, injuries can happen that can change. Like we saw last year, Jonathan Cooper, Teron yeah. Vincent were a couple guys. Uh, we wouldn't have expected them to redshirt, but because they suffered injuries, they ended up using those redshirt years. So it's nice to have it for a situation like that. Uh, where an unexpected injury might happen, and, uh, but I agree with that. I think for the most part, if you don't redshirt as a freshman, it means you know, you're know you expected to contribute in some capacity. So they're most likely not going to redshirt anyone who's not a freshman unless it's an injury situation.
1: You want to talk a little defensive tackle to continue yeah. our state of the position series, which uh, you know, I thought about going full D-line in the same position, but I figured – Since I was separating quarterbacks, cornerbacks, and safeties, I might as well separate defensive tackles and defensive ends. And you know, I think that you know when people think about defensive tackle, it's generally a little bit of a tight end situation. um, But on the defense, where there's not a lot of people talking about D tackles, there's not a lot of people thinking that you know this is a super interesting position group. But I do think you know this year there's a fair amount of intrigue because I think that you know there's probably the way i see it there's i think this group has a lower floor than last year's uh, defensive tackles but i think it has a i think it definitely has a higher ceiling and i think that i think that i think that there's a couple players who i um, look to to as to who are going to determine what which way they go on that i mean one's Teron Vincent um, and and one is Tommy Togiai and i think that those two guys are, are are former highly highly regarded recruits who are finally getting uh, the, the the big minutes and the big snaps that you know people imagine that they would, and they're also buoyed by guys like um, Antoine Jackson and Haskell Garrett, who I think have had fine careers, solid careers, but who aren't standouts. So I think it's an interesting position group that really could go one of two ways, and it's depending on can these guys stay healthy and live up to the potential that you know, we once saw for them on, on the recruiting trail and, and, and some flashes that they've shown since they've been at Ohio State.
0: Yeah, I think people talk so much about the secondary as a potential concern or, or running back, at least before Trey Sermon. But I think this is a quiet position where nobody's really talking about it as a potential weakness or potential problem area. But I, I, I do think there is some reason for concern at this position because, uh, and, and with that being said, start off by saying, I think Tommy Togiai is going to be really, really good. I, th- I think Tommy Togiai has uh, all Big Ten type potential. I think Tommy Togiai uh, could be a fantastic nose tackle. And I think Teron Vincent also has a ton of potential. We, we just haven't seen it yet because he didn't play at all last year. So to me, he's still kind of a question mark, but... You're talking about a guy who was a five-star recruit, so I, certainly I think he's got star potential as well. But we just haven't seen enough of him for for me to really have any evaluation on him that goes beyond what he did in high school. So, uh, you know, there's a bit of an unknown there. And then you know, you look at the depth. There's only six true scholarship defensive tackles on the entire roster. So you think about. How much Larry Johnson likes to maintain a deep rotation, but for him to do that this year, guys got to stay healthy. If there's injuries at that position, that position could quickly become really thin. So, you know, I, I think the potential is there at the top of a unit uh, with Togiai and Vincent that you could potentially have two studs. But you know, you do you have guys like. Uh, you know Haskell, you know Haskell Garrett. I mean Haskell Garrett could be the starter alongside Tommy Toe. Yeah, he's going into his senior year. Uh, he was solid in a rotational capacity last year. You know I think he's a good player. Antoine Jackson's a guy who came in with a lot of hype. Uh, don't think he's really delivered on that hype yet. But you know this could be a big opportunity for him to break through. You know Jeron Cage, another guy who's been in the program for a while. You know maybe this is the year he finally puts it all together and becomes a Significant contributor in that group, but there's a lot of unknowns there and not a ton of depth, which makes it, uh, to me at least, a position of mild concern for this year.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's gonna. I don't think they're gonna be a, in a situation where we're looking at a defensive tackle and we're like, wow, they are not good at all. Like I think the floor for them is, you know, they're fine, but I think that when Larry Johnson looks at his defensive line, like he wants to have a really strong nose tackle who who it's someone who can penetrate and he wants a three technique who is really good and someone who can make plays. I mean, you look at back at Draymond Jones a couple seasons ago, he had eight and a half sacks. Like that's the kind of, that's the kind of pass rushing ability and that, that, that Larry Johnson wants from that three technique. And I think that, you know, Teron Vincent could maybe be that guy, but I can't say that with any degree of certainty right now. I mean, he's healthy from what we know, but he didn't play at all last season. He played fewer than a hundred snaps as a freshman. So to say that he's going to come out and be like a Draymond Jones immediately this season as a redshirt sophomore, I just don't feel confident saying that. And someone like Haskell Garrett, who's in his fourth season, he's a senior. You know, I thought it was interesting that I think Pro Football Focus had him as the top returning uh, defensive tackle in the Big Ten, um, grade-wise. I mean, I, I guess, but. I mean he had ten tackles and two and a half tackles for loss last season. Like if you're talking about a three technique who makes plays, I don't think that Haskell Garrett is that guy right now. I mean he didn't have a sack last season. Um, I think that if Ohio State wants what it wants 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 to maximize its its defensive tackles and wants to um, wants what Larry Johnson wants out of it, to me it's gonna come down to Teron Vincent if he can be the kind of guy that that um, people imagine that he would be when he signed with Ohio State as a, as a five-star at high school.
0: Yeah, and I think when you talk about, you know, wanting to have that impact player at defensive tackle, part of that equation, too, is Chase Young's not at Ohio State anymore. So if you're going to make up for Chase Young, I know you wrote uh, this past weekend about, you know, how can Ohio State can generate a pass rush without Chase Young. That's not just on the defensive ends. That's got to come from those defensive tackles, too. They've got to be generating pressure inside for Ohio State to be able... Because I I do think it's going to be much more of a pass rush by committee approach this year. I don't think you're going to have one superstar pass rusher. I mean, Zach Harrison's got that potential, but I don't know that he's going to be quite there yet this year. So I think you're going to need a lot of different guys to step up for you to continue to, to have an elite pass rush. And that... Certainly, those defensive tackles, a guy like Teron Vincent, whoever's playing at that free tech spot, uh, it's going to be really important for those guys uh, to step up. And we, and we saw that last year. I, mean, I think like Devon Hamilton was a guy, even at that nose tackle spot, who really stepped up in, in that regard. I think Jay Sean Cornell was a guy who stepped up. You know, they, they weren't necessarily the guys that we talked about a lot, but those were guys that quietly uh, really did a good job of, of bringing some interior pressure. Uh, it's going to be important for those guys in the rotation this year to be able to do the same.
1: It is. I think that that's maybe one of the more underrated parts, and that's why I think that's why when I say that I think that they're going to be fine at defensive tackle. Like I don't, I'm I'm not call am I'm, I'm not saying this is a position that's cause for alarm, but I think when you look around, I think this has this is a position that you would hope is going to be more than fine that you'd hope is gonna be really good and, and impactful. Because defensive end you're replacing a lot, um, namely Jace Young, and you know, defensive tackle, you you hope that you can make up for, for some of what he brought, but at the same time you're also making up for what Devon Hamilton, Robert Landers and Jay Sean Cornell brought in in that regard, especially as pass rushers. So I think I think that it's just they're in a they're in a little bit of a tough spot when it when it comes to the way that I view it and that, you know, I think that they're gonna be all right but are they going to be impactful? Are, are they going to be a reason why Ohio State's a national title contender? Or are they just going to be you know, a solid piece of, of that? I don't know. I think that I, I lean towards them being just, just, uh, just fine. I think that they're going to be fine. I don't think that they're going to be great, but I do wonder if that's enough, if that's what Ohio State needs from this, or if Ohio State really does need its defensive tackles to be better than that.
0: Yeah, I I lean toward the same way as you. You know, I I think I think Tommy Tokiye could definitely be great. I think so I. Teron Vincent certainly has the potential to be great, but I just question whether, with as much as Larry Johnson likes to rotate at that position, and we've seen they're at their best when they have multiple guys at both spots that can really be disruptive guys. I just question whether Ohio State's going to have that this year because they just. They just don't have many proven guys at that spot. And, and, and you know, it's not a matter of a lack of talent. I mean, they, they, these guys are talented, but they're just not... I mean, even I we both feel really confident in him, but he's been a, the third-string nose tackle for the last couple of years. He hasn't been out there for a lot of really significant snaps. So, so now these guys really got to step up and be leaders of the group, and I think the talent's there, but... Uh, I, I do think there could be a bit of a drop-off at this position because, I, mean, I mean, we talked about it a lot on this podcast last year. Devon Hamilton was really, really good, and he probably didn't get as much credit as he deserved during his during the year itself. But he, he was really, really good. And so I think there's big shoes to fill. I mean, between all three of those fifth-year seniors, because not only were those guys really good players, they, they were also leaders for the defense. And so I think there's a big void there that those guys got to fill uh, and it, it, I, I think, you know, Togi, I, Vincent, and Haskell Garrett are the guys you look at to lead the way.
1: Yeah, I, I think long-term also. Like, this is a position that I'm just sort of fascinated in and, and how it plays out. Because, you know, the we've seen in recent years how much Larry Johnson likes to rotate, how much he wants to rotate, how much of a big deal that is to him. But like this season, I'm not sure that they'll be able to do so at, at the rate that they did last year. And then going forward, I think that this is one of the thinner position groups on the team. Um, just because, like you said, like the only guy we really haven't mentioned is Jaden McKenzie. I mean, they didn't bring in it. They didn't bring in any true freshmen who are who are coming into the program who right now are listed defensive tackles who are practicing during the spring with the defensive tackles. Maybe a Jacoby Cowan or a Darian Henry Young moves over and, and serves that role and, 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 you know, is fine with that. But, you know, right now I think that they're maybe a little bit more thin than people realize, uh, especially as w- among their uh, freshmen and sophomores.
0: Yeah, I think if you look at, you know, recruiting right now, to me, if you're talking about positions of need where they need to, to still get some guys... I'd put defensive tackle right at the top of the list. I think the class of 2021, we've talked about how loaded that class is. They do already have one top 100 defensive tackle in Mike Hall, but I think they really need to add another defensive tackle to that class. I think Tywon Malone is, is probably the guy, another top 100 guy uh, from New Jersey, who I think is, is probably the guy who's their top target to be that nose tackle role, which is what they really need. I think, I think they really need another nose tackle. Uh, to add to that class because Mike Hall is more of a free technique. Even those defensive ends you mentioned, if one of them kicks inside, they're gonna be free techniques because they're not, you know, big nose tackle types. So so I, I think that is a major need for Ohio State right now in recruiting to to add another nose tackle in the mix. Certainly in twenty twenty two it's going to continue to be a need as well because we talk about it they have six true defensive tackles right now and Five of them are in at least fair-fair year at Ohio State, so that definitely leads to some precarious depth uh, questions there. If, if the recruiting does not pick up at that position in the next couple classes,
1: yeah, I feel like a crazy person saying that. I think Larry Johnson might have, you know, missed the boat a little bit on recruiting strategy, but like their nose tackle situation right now, long term, is not awesome. I mean, right now it's Tommy Togiai and Antoine Jackson this season, which is fine. But next year it's Tommy Togiai and who? I don't really know. I mean, maybe Jaden McKenzie or Jaron Cage, you know, they, they shift them over to the one technique and, and that's the answer. But I'm not sure that that's a great answer. And that's where I think a guy like Tywon Malone I, – I, I I'm going to be honest, Dan. This is another situation. I'm just going to go with Malone because I feel like there's no chance it's just Taiwan. Taiwan, I think it might be Taiwan.
0: I'm not positive to be honest. Right, I'm
1: gonna go. I'm just gonna go team alone because uh, we'll give him a chance uh, to. We'll give us a chance to uh, get to know him and and learn to pronounce his name. Because good God, this is not a great uh, podcast. If you want to know how to pronounce the names of recruits, um, <laughs> but I think that he's so important because. I just don't know who the, who the Nets nose tackle is at Ohio State, and he's someone who I think if he comes in, he, he'll probably be able to, to play immediately. Um, and I think that going beyond that, they're going to need to get a second uh, a second player like him in, in, the, in the Nets class. I think that that's something that you know, Larry Johnson probably should have addressed in the 2020 class, but for whatever reason, they didn't.
0: Well, and it does make me wonder if, if maybe some of his signals – uh, if some of this is strategic in terms of maybe the type of players they're looking for, but maybe they aren't looking for as many big nose tackles. Maybe they're looking uh, to change the way their defensive line looks a little bit. Because we've seen them recruit a lot of these kind of hybrid tweener types here in recent years. Uh, I mean, all, all three of these guys, defensive ends they brought in this year they're all kind of a tight fit they're defensive ends but maybe they can end up at defensive tackle if they grow and then if we want to get into recruits whose names we might pronounce wrong uh, jt tuamolow is another guy that they certainly want is, is is certainly their top target at defensive line remaining in the class he's a guy who was originally classified as a defensive tackle uh, now he's he's classified as an end but could be another guy who could maybe fit at other spot but the, the way he looks right now he looks like an end but they do seem to be looking at a lot of those kind of guys who are you know they they could maybe end up at either spot and you know maybe they're really bigger defensive ends but uh you know we have seen them do a lot with the rushman package in recent years with you know four defensive ends on the field you know maybe they're looking to do some more with that kind of stuff and and, and guys who are kind of those multi-positional guys, but it, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years.
1: Yeah, I think maybe that's the case, but also they're looking at Malone, who is the prototypical nose tackle, right. 6'3", 300 pounds. Like, that is exactly what a nose tackle is. So to me, you know, they're keeping the, – the, they want that on the team. Um, they just ha- they, they don't have it on the team beyond Tommy Togiai right now, and I think that's what's interesting about the long term of, of this position group.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, it is, it, and you're right. I mean, Tommy Togiai is another guy who's a true nose tackle, so it's not that they haven't recruited guys like that. It's just noticeable that they haven't recruited a ton of them, so they're either going to need to develop guys into that position, which they could because – there's, I mean, part of it is there's not a ton of 300 pounders in high school, so there could there could be guys that maybe we're not looking at as nose tackles right now that maybe they think we're going to develop them into that at, at, as they get get bigger. Uh, I mean, even a Cormonte Hamilton might be that kind of guy because I don't know exactly where he's going to factor in for them, but yeah, it, it, I, I do agree that I think you know there, there's maybe maybe a misstep there. Not bringing in a true nose tackle in in either of the past two classes, and if they don't do that in twenty twenty one, that could be a reason for concern.
1: We can we can we can uh, we can move on and, and talk a little bit of basketball, Dan,
0: because a little bit of basketball bas-
1: basketball is coming back.
0: Yeah to be more specific the basketball (laughs) tournament tvt is coming to columbus just announced this past week from july 4 through 14 it was just announced uh just shortly before we started recording here on tuesday afternoon that carmen's crew the ohio state alumni team that is the defending champions is going to be the number one overall seed and big x which has uh, five former Ohio State players, including uh, both of the Wesson brothers, they're the number nine seed. So going to be a lot of Buckeyes playing in Columbus. Unfortunately, fans are not going to be able to go to the games because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But certainly uh, to watch on TV, going to be some fun Ohio State uh, basketball angles. Uh, I know we're both hoping... Uh, I think if we look at a the bracket, uh, there, there could be a quarterfinal matchup between Carmen's crew and Big X, and the way those teams have been talking trash to each other on Twitter over the past few weeks, I think we're all hoping we get to see that matchup.
1: Yeah, that would be fun. Um, I, think, um, I think CJ Jackson's girlfriend runs the Big X Twitter feed, by the way, which is a hilarious little tidbit. Did not but, know that. Um, I think Big X, to me is just about as fascinating as Carmen's crew this year. Because they added Caleb Wesson and Caleb Wesson's addition to me is I didn't one I one I didn't see coming. And two, I think it's fascinating because we'll get to see him matched up against guys who are, you know, veterans of, of either the NBA or, or, you know, international leagues. And I think that'll be interesting to see because, um, I mean he's someone who you you never want to say this because oftentimes you know you don't know how true it is. But he's someone whose draft stock and and whether he gets drafted or not could ultimately be um, defined by how well he plays in TBT. And I think I think just the fact that he's actually going through with it as a draft prospect is 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 fascinating. It's interesting, and you know I commend him for actually doing it because. It is a little bit of a risk, and and sure, there's some reward there, but if you don't play well, then you might not get drafted.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a really fascinating storyline, and so far, as far as I know, I think he's the only draft prospect who has committed to playing in this tournament. I thought maybe that would be a wave for some other guys, but I, I haven't seen anyone else. Um, doesn't mean there won't be because there's still a few weeks until the tournament starts, and uh, teams might still make some roster additions. But uh, I think that's going to be a very interesting storyline, assuming Caleb actually plays. Uh, that you know, this is a guy who's preparing to for the NBA draft, and and is actually going to play in this tournament with you know mostly guys who are international players. So uh, that's going to be fun. I mean, it, I mean, it's definitely going to be fun. Uh, you know, having you know five guys on that team, uh, if also Andre, West, and C.J. Jackson, Keyshawn Woods. Andrew Dockich. And then, of course, Carmen's crew trying to defend its title in what will be Aaron Kraft's final competitive basketball tournament. So uh, certainly uh, a lot of people going to be rooting for VAM and certainly hoping to see Aaron Kraft uh, go out on top.
1: Yeah, that'll be fun. I mean, the terrible thing is that no one will actually get to watch his, his last game in person. This would have been perfect. It's the storybook ending, except for there's nobody in the stands.
0: Yeah, that that is definitely a downer because I think that's been a a big part of a fun of this tournament the past couple years is uh, you know having games in Columbus and Ohio State fans being able to go and I think a lot of that adds to the nostalgia factor of all this. Uh, but it, but it's still going to be fun because there hasn't been live basketball since the conference tournaments were canceled in March. So uh, I think just to get to watch some live basketball again, uh, 24 teams. Uh, you know, looking like rosters are going to be pretty strong for this thing this year. Uh, it's going to be fun to watch. I know, I know, I'm going to watch at, at least the games that the Ohio State teams are in. Uh, we, we've had so little sports recently. I'm looking forward to seeing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not someone. I'll be honest, who is really locked into the basketball tournament the past few years. But I will, I will absolutely be watching this one. I think it'll be interesting.
0: Some. Actually, negative recruiting news for Ohio State over the past week. Uh, J.C. Latham committing to Alabama. Hudson Wolf to Tennessee. You know, those were a couple guys but I think a few months ago we all would have said we thought would end up at Ohio State. Uh, a little bit of steam losing here for this 2021 class. Uh, we also saw Troy Stilato commit to Clemson a couple weeks ago. But still a massive lead for the Buckeyes four of a number one class of 2021. You just wrote about this a few days ago, Colin. What needs to happen for Ohio State to still have a shot at the best recruiting class in the modern era?
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, Ohio State could stop right now and their class would still be really good with 19 commitments, with multiple top 100 guys and multiple five-star prospects still on the board. But if we're talking the best of the best, you're, you're comparing yourself to 2010 Florida, um, And in doing so, you've still got to land multiple five star prospects and multiple top 100 prospects and then more, which sounds crazy given what Ohio State already has in this class. But, you know, I put together um, what a class might look like, and that's uh, JT, say his last name, Dan? Wow. Thank you. As, I think. And then Emeka Ibuka. And then Derek Davis, and then uh, Tywin Malone. And that's not even enough to, to get Ohio State over. And that's two top 10 prospects, and then two top 60 overall prospects. So then, with 23 uh, commitments, um, if you add in, you know, I added Rayshawn Benny and then Mitchell Evans, who are um, it's an offensive tackle ranked 194th, and a tight end ranked 501st then that would give Ohio State the best class ever. But only then, which would require multiple five-star prospects, multiple top 100 guys. Like, to me, I would call it a near-perfect finish. If Ohio State can get that, then they would have the best recruiting class of the modern era, which is a ton. (laughs) That's a lot to ask for. Um, But, I mean, you're talking about one of – I mean, you're talking about Urban Meyer's best class he ever recruited.
0: Yeah, I mean, that would be the ideal scenario. I mean, if, I, if I was setting you know, betting odds right now, I would bet against Ohio State getting that all-time best recruiting class ranking ever because that is a lot that needs to happen. But, you know, at the same time, all those guys you mentioned are guys that they, you know, realistically have a shot at. Certainly, Tuomolo and Ngbuka, you know, those are the, the two top guys right now, both top 10 prospects. If Ohio State can land both of them, no matter what else happens... Uh, this class is going to be one of the best ever in an absolute home run. So, you know, that's the top guys. Like you talked before, I think Taiwan Malone is right there behind those guys as the every guy you'd really, really like to get because you need a nose tackle. Derek Davis, I think if Zach Carpenter was on, I think that would be the number one guy on his board because Zach is a huge Derek Davis fan. To me, that would be more of a luxury. I think uh, it would be awesome to get him because he's, he is a, a great player, uh, you know, another versatile safety linebacker type who could do a lot for Ohio State. But to me, that's kind of a luxury. I think they've got enough at those positions where uh, if they don't miss out on him, it's not going to make a, it's not a huge negative there. Uh, I think that's a guy you'd love to get. But uh, I think those other three are probably your top priorities just in terms of rounding out the class and trying to hit uh, the remaining positional needs that you have.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I I think it's um, the interesting thing right now is there's a few guys who are atop their board and it's just going to it might take a while to, to get decisions from them. And I'm not really sure when the next commitment will be, and I think that that's the interesting part of this, is is how Ohio State turns around at offensive tackle, and then when is the next commitment that they're going to get? Because I don't necessarily think it's around the corner.
0: Yeah, so it's tough because we have no idea if and when guys are going to be able to visit campus again. So that's... I think, you know, slowed down the process at this point in terms of, you know, rounding out that class. You know, I think, they, I think they got all the commitments from the guys who were ready to commit sight unseen or without another visit. I think everybody else now is in that holding pattern of they'd really like to come back and visit Ohio State again. You know, especially, you know, those first two guys you mentioned, you know, Tuomoloa and Egbuka. Uh, you know, they're both from Washington State. So they're certainly guys that I think would like to be able to make the trip to Columbus and be able to see what it's all about before they commit. So I I think in terms of, you know, what happens here with the recruiting calendar, and if visits are allowed to happen at some point, uh, late summer, early fall, uh, could have an impact on those guys' decision timelines as well.
1: Yeah, I I think so. I think that I mean, one, I just have no idea what to expect on on visits anymore. So I think that um, that's almost the number one thing you have to figure out is, can you host these guys during the fall? And I don't really know when they'll learn that.
0: A few more questions here for us to get to before we wrap up this week's podcast. Silver Sniper asked us, what kind of betting odds would you put on Paris Johnson beating out Nicholas Petitfrere for the right tackle spot this year. I, mean, I would certainly give Petit, Petit Frere would certainly be the favorite in my book. You know, I, I would give him negative odds. Um, I don't know, that I'm a good enough odds maker to know like exactly what the numbers should be there. Um, but I I'd probably put it at something like Petit-Ferrer Frere minus three hundred. Johnson plus 200 because I do think that, you know, the, the guy who's been in the program for two years that was a five star recruit, uh, he should be the front runner for the job. I still expect him to uh, win the job and be the starting right tackle, but, you know, Paris is in there. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to give Paris something like, you know, plus 500 odds because I think he has a realistic shot. I might give. You know, Dewan Jones' odds closer to that because I think he is a more of a long shot to win the job. But, uh, you know, I do think Petit Frere is the clear favorite.
1: Yeah, I'd go Paris at plus 240 because there you go. I, I really gave that a, a lot of thought, and um, now I'm taking bets. So if you want to send me money, <laughs> you can send me money.
0: Did not know Colin Hassel was running in a, an illegal book out of his uh, Cleveland house apartment whatever it is
1: yeah i didn't know either but you know <laughs> one
0: may or may not have just opened i cannot confer or tonight dan we've 77 asked us an interesting question and he was worried he was worried we were going to skip it but we're not going to skip it because i actually think it's a good it's a good question and worthy of uh discussion here uh at the end of our podcast and he asked us in the past, delving into politics was considered the third rail of sports reporting, but more recently, it has become an increasingly inescapable and perhaps even integral aspect of a profession. Given that and he asked us three questions, I'll run through them and then we'll answer um, each individually. He asked, "How do you and Colin handle that rapidly changing aspect of your job? Do you find reporting on politically charged stories a figurative minefield or is it relatively straightforward?" And do you and Eleven Warriors management worry about offending a substantial portion of Eleven Warriors reading, reader base by appearing too far or not far enough to one side? Or do you just focus on reporting the facts as you see them without any concern to potential backlash? So starting with the first one, you know, how do we handle that rapidly changing aspect of their job. I mean, that's it's a good way to put it, it's rapidly changing because especially the, the way these last few months have been, there's just been so many different things from the pandemic to, you know, the Black Lives Matter situation and, and the protests that are going on. There's been so many different things that we've had to handle that honestly aren't things that we've written about our 11 Warriors before and that we've had to uh, kind of adjust on the fly and figure out... You know how to report on these things, and and how to strike this balance because it is a it is a tough balance, and I think it's something that uh, we at Eleven Warriors, you know, have had a lot of conversations about and have struggled with at times in figuring out that right balance because we don't want to dive too far into the political spectrum. You know, we've always tried uh, to focus primarily on sports and and not get into you know, debates about political candidates or, or, or going too far into that spectrum. But I think the reality is, you know, especially recently, you know, especially with some of the protests that have gone on and, and you know, athletes like Seth Towns and C.J. Saunders getting involved in protests for themselves and athletes speaking out, it's something that you cannot ignore. It's something that you you have to uh, be about. If you're going to actually cover... Uh, This sports team, as a journalist, in an appropriate and a complete way, you cannot ignore these things that are happening because these are a part of your athletes' lives. So I think you have to try to strike that right balance in terms of, you know, there's certain stories, you know, and sometimes it's really not hard. Like, like, Seth Towns getting arrested for, or detained, I should say, for participating in a protest to me, that's clearly a story. There was no consideration of we're not going to touch this because it's too political. Like that's clearly a story. You know, Colin interviewed Seth Towns. There was no discussion of we're not going to touch this because it's 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 too uh, politically charged a story. An Ohio State basketball player uh, becoming an integral voice in the the protests in his hometown. That that's news story. That is something that's too significant for us not to try to cover as best as we can.
1: Yeah, I think that um, the word that I don't necessarily agree with, I don't think that we, we've we covered political issues. I think that we've covered social issues. Like, I think that we've covered relevant social issues. I think we've covered the the, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and what Ohio State athletes have done in regard to that. I think we've covered the coronavirus pandemic um and and i and i i think that what i wouldn't do is i wouldn't um write about seth towns uh taking down donald trump i wouldn't write about you know seth towns says this about joe biden like i don't necessarily think his opinions on that are as newsworthy as, um, you know, his opinions on this social movement. Um, and, you know, in the story, I think that he referred, he, there was a little bit of politics because I don't think that you can have a story like that that runs thousands of words without, you know, him. W- when you talk to him about this and him talking about politics, I think you have to at least write about it a little bit. Um, and he talked about the, the, what he wants is for there to be proactive rather than reactive politics, I didn't think that that was a crazy thing to put in there. I mean, yeah, he brought up Trump. It's not that I consciously didn't put that in there, it's just that I didn't think that, I didn't think it really fit into the story that I was really writing. Um, And I don't, I I think that generally, um, the stories that that we're trying to do are are about, you know, these athletes, these teams, and we're not doing the political stories. Um, We're, if they're involved in these social movements, then yeah, I think it's our duty to, to cover them because clearly, it's, it's extremely important to them, and the, and and we're supposed to cover more than just what they do on third and ten. We're supposed to cover them as human beings, and, and hypothetically, people want to know more about these guys. And this is this is Seth Towns. This is who he is. So hopefully, by by reading a, by reading uh, what he says, by learning more about him, you you get a better idea of that and and even though we're not talking about basketball some of the time
0: yeah i think that's a good point that you made about social issues versus political issues and and maybe you know i should have addressed that from the jump but i think you i think you're right about that but i i i don't i don't think we're writing anything that's been clearly political i think we have tried to avoid that um and i don't Anticipate that us. I don't anticipate us going down that route of where we would start writing stories that are uh, endorsing, you know, political parties or anything like yeah, that. I think, like I that. think we I th-
1: actively avoid that. In fact,
0: we do, we do. But I, I, think, I think what makes this an interesting conversation, and and I think it's important that you made that distinction, is because I think, I think we have collectively, and and, and, and individually, probably as well. But I think we have collectively, at times, probably avoided some stories in the past. But maybe we shouldn't have, because of that fine line between, you know, social issues and and you know these guys' lives and politics. And I think that's where my eyes have opened up a little bit here in, in the last couple months. Is we can't, we can't just avoid writing any story that might offend some of our readers. We, we, we just can't. And, I, and I, know, I know that there are – I'm sure there's listeners to this podcast and I know that there are readers on the website who every time we write a story that hits on certain topics will complain about, I just want to read about sports. I come here to read about sports. I, I want a distraction from this stuff. Uh, I, 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 you know, v- the comments get out of control anytime you guys write about this. But and they do like <laughs> go ahead, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say, and they do. They do the comments do get out of control. They, uh, they do. But. Like, these are important issues, and I think that it's worthy of hearing people. Like, when I talked talked to Terry Johnson, and, you know, this is such an important issue that, you know, his point is that, you know, he's been silent on these issues for so long. He's no longer going to be silent. That sounds like an important thing and something that's worthy of being written about. This isn't Terry Johnson going out and endorsing a political candidate. This isn't him giving his, you know, thoughts on abortion. This is him talking about black lives mattering. Like it's it's not to me that's not a political issue that's more of a societal issue
0: and we're talking about things here and we're talking about something here where the ohio state football team has put out a video on all of its platforms calling for change we're talking about every ohio state basketball coach calling for change we're talking about numerous players from across all ohio state sports teams Calling for calling for change and and, and talking about uh, you know these issues that you know might affect them personally in their lives. So if we're gonna cover you know these teams and their athletes as as not just uh, players on a field or a court, but also as human beings, we have to cover these issues. We 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 should get their opinions on these issues and we shouldn't you know shy away from covering that just because some people don't want to hear it because guess what they want you to hear it <laughs> i mean they they don't want you to just look at them as athletes they want you to look at them as human beings and they want you to to be paying attention to what's going on so i i just think you know as journalists, and, and and even the initial point here of you know delving into politics was considered the third rail of, of sports reporting. I mean, I, I, there is, I mean, there's definitely some you know separation there of you know being a sports writer and trying not to delve too much into certain issues. But I, I you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with that completely because I, I I think as a journalist, I, I think you're trained to to find the stories that are relevant about your team. And I think I you know I think the challenging thing is that you know I think like when you work for a newspaper and you've got a news division and 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 I think you know there's kind of more blending between this stuff. I think when you're uh, working for an internet sports site where you're mostly just writing about sports and you're not writing about the news of the day that sometimes wading into those things can be uncomfortable or you know, they can be things that people aren't used to reading on on your website. So I think you know that's where the challenging you know conversations and decisions about what to cover come in. But you know, I I, I think that you just have to you you have to be able to you know make those decisions, and you have to be able to look at it and say, you know, the, these are the stories that are important enough to that, that we need to talk about. And I, and I also think there's a higher Threshold as well with some of these things and what we write about. I think you know just being a, being a website where I think we publish a lot of stuff. I think there's a, I think the threshold for something we might publish that's just about football or just about basketball is a little lower than this. I think when we're talking about you know social issues and and stuff like this, we're not going to just write about every single tweet or every single thing that's connected to this i think we try to be more selective in terms of what are the stories that really need to be told and making sure that when we do write them that we put the proper care into them if you if if we're writing about you know Seth towns participating in a protest or you know cj saunders participating in a protest or whoever these aren't a story that you just want to rush and forget about. These are the kind of stories that I think we want to make sure we, we put the time into and that we are being smart about the way we write these certain things to make sure we represent them the appropriate way.
1: All right, so we're not going to answer the next two questions quite as long, but...
0: <laughs> I think I think we kind of touched on We them,
1: did. So I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think we touched on the second one to... to to touch on the third one real quick, which was, do you and/or Eleven Warriors Management worry about offending a substantial portion of the reader base by appearing too far to one side or the other? I mean, we can't speak for uh, <laughs> we can't speak for everyone at Eleven Warriors. on that, I can only sort of speak for myself, which is, like, yeah. I mean, do I worry? No, I don't think I worry about it, but I know it's going to happen. Like every time you run anything about a social issue, you 100% know what the comments are going to look like and you have an idea of what the response from some people on social media is going to look like. And it's not fun, but like you said and like we've touched on enough, you know, some of these things are very important issues and they deserve to be written about. So even, even with that, I think that you know, we have
0: to write certain things. Yeah, I mean, we we were asked him a second question. You know, do you find reporting on politically charged stories a a, a figurative minefield? I mean, kinda. I mean, kinda. I mean, we we do know. I mean, we do know certain stories that we publish. We know there's going to quickly be a lot of comments. Uh, We we know there's going to be arguments. I mean, I I think back to a couple weeks ago when we did a a podcast that was primarily on the topic of Social justice and it at far more comments on the site than any other real Pod Wednesdays post has. and I'm just guessing here that most of them weren't from those of you that actually listened to the podcast. They were just people reacting to, to the headline that didn't actually listen to what we had to say if I'm being completely honest, there. but uh, yeah, I mean we, 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 we do know that you know it's, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a minefield and if we're being honest, I mean it's a lot easier. For us to write about straight up football, straight up basketball, than it is for us to write about these topics. But
1: yeah, a lot less stressful because we do it all yeah, the time.
0: It's a lot less stressful, but you can't ignore these topics. And I think we've seen that, you know, especially in the past few weeks, uh, in regards to racism, and regards to some of the other issues that are happening in our country. That I, I know I've personally felt compelled to speak up in a way that maybe I haven't before. And I, I, I think, you know. Even just personal social media, you know, I'm someone who, for the most part, in the past, has you know, not spoken out a ton on non-sports stuff because I do know that it's going to offend certain people who follow me. I do know that it's going to lead to arguments that maybe I really don't feel like being a part of. But I, I, I've also felt you know more compelled recently that like there's certain things. Uh, again, it's not necessarily political candidates or anything like that, but just in terms of seeing injustices in the world, there are certain things I look at and say I need to speak up about this. Uh, you know, these are things that you know if, if you have a platform, you need to speak up about it. And it, it, there comes a point where you just have to stop worrying about who you might offend offend by it. So, you know, I think we're certainly not going out of our way to try to, to turn readers away. That's certainly not something that we want to do, but there are certain stories that we feel like ought to be covered, and, and, and we hope that the majority of readers are recognizing the fact that, hey, we're, we're covering these stories because we think they're important and we think we need to be told, and, and we hope that you're reading them. You know, I, I think I remember seeing one comment recently I think it was on one of Colin's stories, either a Seth Towns or Terry Johnson story, and somebody made the comments along the lines of, "I can go somewhere else if I want to read this." Well, no, you can't because Colin had an exclusive one-on-one interview with this person and wrote this story, so this story is not anywhere else. So, uh, you know, we're, we're we're trying to tell these stories and provide context that maybe isn't somewhere else, and um, hopefully, if you really don't want to read that. I, I know we post enough content on 11 Warriors every day that if, even if you don't want to read about that stuff, there's plenty of other stuff for you to read. But you know, we do think it's important uh, with, with social issues when, when they directly involve Ohio State sports teams that, that we should discuss those topics.
1: We've got one more question, Dan, and we get to throw uh, old Kevin Harris under the bus.
0: <laughs> Gin and Juice asked us about the site's daily polls. Who comes up with them? Is there a lottery system or assigned days? And why do they cut so deep sometimes? Haha. <laughs> well, who comes up with them? That was what Colin just hinted at. Uh, Kevin Harris, our colleague, he does the, the weekday site polls. Uh, we, we have something that's called a weekend editor rotation where uh, usually uh, one staff member... Uh, kind of you know, runs the site for the most part on the weekend. So whoever is that person, it was actually Colin this past week and me the week before, so whoever is that person that weekend will typically do the polls on the weekend, uh, but Kevin will do them during the week. So the vast majority of polls you see on 11warriors.com, uh, those are Kevin's creations. And uh, not to speak for Kevin, but I do know from talking to him that um, he'll tell you that uh, it can be pretty hard to come up with polls this time of year when there's no sports going on. Um, you know I think a lot of times you're just coming up with them based on uh, it might be based on an article we wrote. it might be based on a topic that's in the news or it might just be something that pops into your head as an interesting topic. But you know in terms of cutting so deep, I think Ginn and Juice made the example of uh, the one about whether you would trade a loss. Uh, for Michigan for a guaranteed national championship, and and that got a lot of people fired up. But to me, the idea behind a poll is to create debate, to create discussion, to uh, kind of see what people's opinions are on things. So I think the goal uh, always in, in creating a poll, and I think Kevin would certainly agree with this, is trying to come up with a question that uh, has multiple possible answers and that will... Uh, generate some discussion and i think kevin does a really good job of that
1: yeah it's hard to come up with three questions it's hard to come up with 30 questions harder harder than ever to come up with 300 questions in a year and that's what he has to do so yes some of them might cut deep because he has no idea what he's doing on a certain day maybe because you know he's used up 250 of his best ideas. He's like, Well, shoot, what do I do now? So then he makes you choose which Big Ten East coach you would want to replace Ryan Day. And then you have to realize that, Oh my God, Tom Allen is a lot of states' head coach.
0: Yeah, and I think Silver Sniper pointed out in the comments about, you know, there's been some in the past, like, you know, picking, you know, which five star recruit is going to make the biggest impact. And he was worried about, uh, you know, is that, you know, player going to feel offended by not getting enough votes but I mean we're an Ohio State sports site I mean I mean our our, our entire site is generated in discussing things that could happen with Ohio State sports and uh, making predictions and certainly uh, the readers and their comments and how they contribute to the discussion are a huge part of that so uh, I don't think we can keep that kind of stuff off limits I mean I don't think we're ever going to put up a poll saying, you know, is such and such a player going to transfer this year or something like that. I mean, that there, there's definitely certain, you know, things that would be taboo that we would not want to get into. But you know, in terms of, you know, I think today's poll, as we're recording, was who will be the starting running back in 2021. I mean, that's that's a very fair discussion point. I don't I don't think we can worry about uh, offending a player because they didn't get enough votes from the fans. I think it's fun to uh, get a you know, get a discussion point out there, uh, you know, get, get a vote out there and uh, kind of see what the fans have to say and and then, you know, kind of have that discussion. So uh, I know occasionally there are times where the, the polls may uh, cut a little deeper than people think, but all in all, I think Kevin does a really good job of, of coming up with engaging questions and, and usually... Uh, does a good job of coming up with questions that are not uh, leading to lopsided answers that have uh, multiple different answers that you could pick and and can lead to a good discussion. So uh, I think he does a really good job of that. Uh, I was informed as I was talking about this that I've lost Colin. I do no longer hear him here on the podcast, but the good news is we've run out of time anyway. So uh, that's our cue to wrap up this week's episode of Pod Wednesday. So I'll have to say goodbye to to you all for Colin on his behalf, Uh, but want to thank you again uh, for listening in to this week's episode, and we'll be back next week.